Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney with my co-host Eric Raskin. I am Kieran Mulvaney and a big chunk of the podcast, spoiler alert, will be devoted today to next week's heavyweight title fight. The man who was born to be a boxer, Tyson Fury. And by born to be a boxer, I mean with a name like Tyson Fury, he couldn't possibly be a librarian or a florist. <laughs> but um, as our colleague David Greisman noted in a recent column for The Ring, there is now, Eric, a boxer with an even better name. Trinidad Vargas, <laughs> two of the greatest modern junior middleweight rivals in one convenient name. Uh, as David notes, the only shame of it is that he's actually a 115-pounder, but maybe he'll bulk up. But at least David notes he has the name of two action fighters. It could be worse, he points out. He could be Rigondeo Ruiz. <laughs> that would be a tough one. Yes. Yes. <laughs> uh, th- this is an amazing name, even if it is somewhat depressing that I'm old enough for there to be active fighters named after fights I attended. Uh, although, <laughs> then again, I remember when Fernando Vargas's oldest kid was like one and he used to bring him to press yep. conferences and he's and a, pro a pro boxer, boxer. now. Yep. So yeah, yep. I'm old. There's nothing I can do about it, I guess. Um, but yeah, this uh, the, David uh, writing about this uh, got my attention as well. Got me thinking about other big fights that could very easily be people's names. First one I thought of was Lewis Tyson or Tyson Lewis. I'm sure there mm-hmm. exist real people named both yep. of those. Um, yep. Also, I bet there are a fair few people with the last name Frazier who named a yeah. kid Ali. Or, yeah, or, or, that was my first thought. Yeah, <laughs> or or you could even like sort of put a twist on it and like Oliver Frazier, but he goes by Ali. Ali Frazier, you, you know. Yeah. Um, I wonder if there are any Mexican or Mexican-American fight fans with the last name Morales who named a kid Barrera Morales. Mm. And And here's my last thought on this. If Andre Ward has another son, he's got to name him Gaddy. No excuse not to. <laughs> yes. Honestly, he should. the ideal situation would be if he had triplets and they'd be Gaddy Ward 1, 2, and 3. Oh, <laughs> there you go. They're all just named Gaddy Ward with a number. I like that Gaddy even Ward, more. Gaddy Ward 2 kind of nobody really talks about the middle kid very much. <laughs> right, right. And some people sometimes call the, the first one Ward Gaddy by accident instead of Gaddy Ward. But yeah. <laughs> But I, I like that. I like that approach. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. Um, all right. So as mentioned this week on the podcast, uh, we will be discussing the very top of the heavyweight division uh, with a preview of Tyson Fury, Deontay Wilder three. Uh, that's taking place this Saturday. We'll welcome one of our favorite guests, the great trainer and broadcaster, Joe Goosen, uh, to break down that fight and much more. And we have a twist coming up with our top five list. I'm postponing and maybe possibly canceling uh, the <laughs> list Eric assigned me by one week. Boo. and replacing it with something very timely and eric gets to play as well just to keep yeah. him happy um and that brings us to our lead news item this week uh let's start the show with the major announcement out of the philippines the retirement of a man who turned pro more than a quarter century ago now how old do you feel as a junior <laughs> flyweight and went on to conquer the boxing world yeah, I would, I would hope our listeners uh, figured out that Kieran is talking about Manny Pacquiao. On Tuesday night, Pacquiao posted a 14-minute video on social media announcing his retirement about a month after his comprehensive defeat to Jordanis Ugas at age 42. 
which brought his final record, assuming he does indeed stay retired, to 62 wins, 8 losses, 2 draws, 39 knockouts. He held title belts off and on for a span of 23 years, starting at 112 pounds in 1998, followed by titles at 122, 126, 130, 135, 140, 147, and 154. He fought everybody. Too many names to even begin to list, but in total, depending on a couple of borderline candidates that may or may not make the Hall of Fame, he fought about eight or nine Hall of Famers, some of them three or four times. <sighs> Amazing. Um, we knew this day was coming, Kieran. Uh, we both wanted this day to come now after seeing Manny a step slower against Ugas. I'm curious, did you have an emotional reaction at all to the news this week? And um, I'm sure you could spend a half hour answering this question, but uh, do your best to, to hit the highlights in two or three minutes. How would you sum up Pacquiao's legacy and what he meant to boxing? I guess to take the first part first, the emotional reaction at this stage was relief. Um, like you said, we were both ready for this. Yeah. Um, you, you don't like to see uh, a fighter who's, you know, particularly any fighter, particularly one who's been at the top of his game, who's been so exceptional, continue to fight on well past his, his sell-by date. And there was a little bit of a danger that he might do that. Uh, glad that, that he left when he did. I, I guess it wasn't, a tremendously powerful reaction because it felt like it had to be coming, particularly yep. not just because of what happened in the ring against Ugas or how he has been not quite the Manny Pacquiao of old, but we, you know, once he filed to run for president uh, of the Philippines, then you figured it had to come. Uh, what happens if he doesn't win the presidency of the Philippines? Does he come back at age 45? Maybe. Mm. Who knows? But for now, it, it, it does feel like it is indeed the sort of end of an era. And you know, I first got involved in, in writing about boxing and commenting on boxing in 2003, a few years after you. And at that time, you know, Oscar De La Hoya was still by far the biggest star, but everyone knew he was probably on the back nine of his career. Mm. And I remember that first summer or fall talking to Mark Ratner, then the the head of the Nevada State Athletic Commission. And I asked him, who, did he, who do you think is going to be the next big star? Who's coming around the corner? And, and he shrugged and he said, because this is the guy who was hot at the time, I don't know, that Ricardo Mayorga guy seems pretty good, right? <laughs> um, and then a few weeks later, Manny just bludgeoned Marco Antonio Barrera um, to sort of really re-announce himself. But even then, I don't think it was clear just how huge he would be uh, or that over the next 18 years, he and, you know, the the not especially popular boxer presently at, one, at that time at 130 pounds would be the two biggest stars in the sport for a while. Right. And... There was just so much with Pacquiao. It was the whole pack, a bit, a little like Mike Tyson. It was wasn't just what happened in the ring. It was the whole package, right? It was the backstory. Um, it, his backstory was ridiculous. You know, we talk about how boxing lifts people from poverty, and this kid was so poor that his dad ate his dog. Right. Um, you know, he fought early on at like 108, 112 pounds because he was so malnourished he couldn't put on any more weight, and. and he was this guy, he had this little sing-song voice, and as he became popular, he went off after fights to actually sing. Right. Um, he, he talked about how, you know, they loved the people, and he just wanted to make the people happy, and, <laughs> and it became a joke, but guess what? It wasn't an act. The right. guy literally still hands out money every morning. Um, he smiled, and he laughed, and he joked on his way to the ring, and then he turned into this marauding monster inside the ropes. I, I think the legacy, and you already mentioned this, is that he fought 
everybody just about over eight weight classes um he shied away from no one he also showed that you can lose a fight even a high profile fight and even by knockout and still keep coming back um he showed that it's possible to be a highly effective and popular boxer without ever once having to throw a punch at a press conference or talk smack. I mean, he giggled during face-offs, for God's sake. He thought they were so embarrassing. Um, He fought in a very fan-friendly way. Um, There will always be at least a hint of an asterisk in the, you know, why did his power increase when Alex Ariza was his strength and conditioning coach, and why did he only have one knockout over 10 years afterwards? But, you know, overall... I believe the legacy, legacy will be of a man who exhibited, you know, gentleness outside the ring and explosiveness inside it. I mean, his popularity was immense. Yeah. I would have been okay with him retiring before now. It would have been perfect if he'd retired two years ago after the Thurman fight or even a little bit before that. But even then, by this, we've seen some pretty bad declines right. in fighters. And by that standard... It wasn't too bad. He ended up his last fight. His last fight was reasonably competitive with a with a top four or five guy in his division. But um, I, I think he's been a credit to the sport personally. Um, but what about you? I mean, what do you do? You have like one or two unique or memorable qualities of the Pacquiao experience as a as a fan or a journalist that you look back on. And and here's a challenging question for you. Actually, I sort of touched on these two guys earlier, and of course they'll always be known together. Ultimately, the first two decades of the 2000s go into the boxing history books as either the Mayweather era or the Pacquiao era. Um, bearing in mind whichever answer you give is going to open you up to <laughs> yes. kinds of Twitter hate. Uh, which do you think it will be remembered as more so? Ooh, that, that is a really tough question. And uh, so to, in the spirit of stalling the hate, uh, I'll get to that second. Um, in terms of the, the one or two things that really stand out about the Pacquiao experience, boy, there are so many. You, you hit on uh, a lot of them. I guess one of the key things just has to be how almost universally beloved he was through mm. most of his career. There were a couple of points where people turned on him, perhaps rightly so, things he said about homosexuality that were tough to get yeah. behind. And you alluded to this, at a certain point, PED suspicion emerged and remains. Aside from those, certainly throughout the first decade of the 2000s, he seemed to have a near 100% approval rating, which yeah. you, you just don't see with boxing superstars. You know, name a superstar, there's a decent chunk of the audience that hates them. Muhammad Ali, Floyd Mayweather, Sugar Ray Leonard, Mike Tyson, they're all somewhat polarizing. Manny was just nothing but lovable and thrilling and someone boxing fans could all be proud of, uh, you know, at least for a little while until he took a few dings here and there. The other thing I guess I'd single out is how impressively he evolved as a fighter from being Mm -hmm. so one dimensional at first, all speed and explosiveness and that straight left hand to becoming a clever boxer with great footwork who could fight in several different styles. Uh, it, It really was remarkable the way he just kept adding elements to his arsenal his whole career. He never completely stopped learning. Um, as for that tough question, <laughs> look, the, the true answer is both. I, I think right. history will remember this as the Mayweather-Pacquiao era. Um, and, and that's mostly from like 2005 to 15. Uh, it's It's been the Canelo era since, even though Manny and Floyd have, to varying degrees, remained active. But if I had to guess, 
I lean ever so slightly toward Mayweather being the face of the arrow when people look back a decade or two or three from now, in part because he beat Pacquiao head-to-head and finished undefeated, and in part because his approach to matchmaking actually defined the era more, not necessarily for the better, but Floyd took the approach of fighting like twice a year for the most money you can against mostly carefully chosen opposition. He made an art form of that. And other fighters have tried to follow that blueprint. You don't see too many people trying to follow the Manny blueprint in terms of the willingness to take on every comer at all times. So, look, it's the Mayweather-Pacquiao era, but I suppose Mayweather's name will mostly come first, uh, the same way that I just said it there. But, you know, Pacquiao's career actually might be the harder to replicate of the two. There certainly will never be another Manny Pacquiao. Indeed. And you also, you know, to sort of add to that point of yours, I think you see young boxers, especially young American boxers, of course, trying to be Floyd Mayweather in the ring and not pulling it off, of course, because they're not Floyd Mayweather. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't try to fight like Manny Pacquiao. There is just a pure uniqueness about his awkwardness, his speed, his timing and everything. I just don't think you can replicate that. Uh, you can do you can replicate Floyd very badly. But I just don't know how you can replicate Manny at all. <laughs> yeah, we've seen a couple of Filipino fighters specifically come up and sort of people have tried to affix that label to them that, oh, he's going to be the new Manny Pacquiao and they don't come close. And then, of course, very famously, Richard Schaefer in the ring declared Lucas Matisse, there is a new Manny Pacquiao, and, uh, but uh, didn't quite live up to it. And uh, I don't think uh, anyone really can. You've been dying to bust out your Schaefer on this podcast. And you know, that wasn't even a good one. I'm kind of out of practice. I almost, it was somewhere in between a Schaefer and a Pacquiao, I feel like. I don't know. I I kind of blew it. I got got to work on it. All right. All right. Okay. Well, look, we could go on all day talking about Pacquiao, and we're definitely not done yet. Uh, Later in the show, we will get Joe Goosen's thoughts. And Manny is also at the center of the four alluded to top five list twist. Uh, But for now, let's move on to the other news. And... There is one other item worth exploring in depth. Um, We'll call it, I guess, the co-main of the news segment. It is the ongoing mess surrounding Tiafimo Lopez's lightweight title defense against George Cambosis. You are probably listening to this podcast on Monday, October 4th, which was one of the many dates on which this fight was supposed to occur. But it is not. Uh, The short version, picking up from where we left off on last week's pod, is Trilla wanted to move it to October 16th. Lopez wasn't keen on the idea, but then agreed. But Cambosis wanted more money in order to accommodate the change. When that wasn't offered, he submitted a complaint to the alphabet body involved that Trilla has defaulted and breached the contract, and so Trilla should be removed as the promoter, despite winning the purse bid. As of now, this fight has no date, and we don't know if Trilla will promote it. Eric, is this whole episode exposing a previously unexposed flaw in the purse bid system? And do you have any guess? when this mandatory defense will actually happen at this point? I'll take the second question first and say, no, (laughs) I really don't have a guess. Um, I know it won't be October 16th, or I'm almost certain it won't be. Uh, Triller is planning to stage an event on that date, reportedly, but Cambosos and Lopez will not be part of it. Probably this fight happens sometime before the end of the year with a different promoter, would be my guess. Uh, I believe Matchroom had the next highest bid. But I don't know. I, I'm I'm content with this story to just wait and see and not try to guess when and where. Um, but the bigger issue is 
yeah, the, the purse bid system has a major hole in it, which I'd never really considered before. Um, when a mandatory defense is ordered and promoters can't make a deal, it goes to a blind purse bid, highest bid wins, and anyone can bid, including mm. people and companies that don't know how to promote boxing. I mean, someone with zero experience in boxing at all, less even than Triller. You know, like Elon Musk could have stepped in and bid $20 mm -hmm. million dollars and, well, he wins. Uh, that's an extreme hypothetical. But the experience with Triller on this has turned out to be almost as extreme. They're not a proven promoter. They had one very successful event with Tyson Jones. Mm -hmm. They've never tried to put on a real boxing card. And it turned out they were trying to figure it out on the fly. And they don't really know what they're doing, which is how you get a fight scheduled for a Monday during football season. And instead of just taking the L at that point, they had the audacity to tell two boxers who'd been training toward a particular date, and the fight was just a week or two away, to tell them, eh, let's back it up 12 days. You know, it's it's one thing when that happens due to circumstances beyond your control, like with Hopkins and Trinidad. You know, two-week sure. delay, it's nobody's fault, you're making the best of a bad situation. For the promoter to choose to do this, it shows a complete lack of respect for the boxers and a, a lack of understanding of what it takes to get ready for a boxing match. And... Look, every new promoter or network that comes in and makes a splash tends to stumble a bit, but this is beyond what we typically see. I can't imagine who will want to work with Triller after this. I'd Indeed. be surprised if they're still in the sport of boxing a year or so from now. Yeah, yeah. Um, several notable news items on our undercard. The biggest one, which we could probably devote a whole podcast to, but we'll, we'll limit it to a sentence or two for now. An investigation has found that Aiba assigned officials to fix fights in the 2016 Olympics and possibly the 2012 Olympics. And among the assorted fallout, Joe Joyce is threatening legal action if he isn't awarded a gold medal retroactively. He lost a controversial decision to Tony Yoka in the gold medal round in 2016. I assume you're as shocked as I am, Kieran. Shocked, I say, <laughs> to learn that some of these Olympic boxing matches were rigged. Uh, other items. Um, Jaime Munguia versus Gabriel Rosado has been finalized for November 13th. Top rank won the purse bid for the Artur Beterbiev marcus Brown light heavyweight title fight, but there's no date for the fight yet. As Clarissa Shields prepares for her next MMA fight on October 27th, she grabbed headlines this week by saying Jake Paul would, quote, get his ass whooped if they fought. And lastly, sad news, Antonio Tony Curtis, longtime matchmaker at the Great Western Forum, died of COVID on Tuesday. He had been retired for about 15 years. He helped steer the careers of many great fighters who came through Southern California and was renowned for a willingness to match guys tough, a real fight fans matchmaker. Kieran, comment on those items as you wish. Um, RIP and, and much respect to Tony Curtis, who, like you said, was one of the actually quite small group of people that really was responsible for those old forum boxing days. And, and as you said, like a lot of really good fighters in that Southern California region came up through those forum fights. Uh, that group that was involved in doing that is dwindling. Um, we have Rich Murata still, we have Johnny Bay Rudy still. Um, I worry we have a whole new generation of boxing fans and frankly media who have no idea of the importance and significance of, of, of what those guys did. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was just thinking maybe it's worth a good podcast interview or two, have Rich or Johnny or somebody on to talk mm. about those days sometime. Um, what else? Let me see. Uh, Caressa's great at talking and getting attention for herself, and I'll, <laughs> yes. I'll leave that at that. Um, <laughs> um, I, I find myself 
simultaneously greatly excited by and concerned by Mungia Rosado. Um, I, I thought, we both thought, Gabe was done D-U-N right. a while back, but um, he's since more than shown himself to be worthy of this kind of matchup. Um, you know, he's in this fight on merit. Uh, his draw with Luis Arias a few years ago looks a lot better um, after Arias' most recent outing against Jarrett Hurd. Um, he pushed uh, Sulecki close, Danny Jacobs close. Then, of course, he had that great KO win over Melikusiev. Um If Mungia's at all, like, a little bit off form, uh, Gabe's just the kind of guy who can give him a hard fight and, and really, you know, expose him. But I still, I just can't help worry. But at some point, the thought that we had a couple of years ago is going to prove to be true and it's going right. to be one fight too many for Gabe, especially the way he fights. But he is on this fight for, for uh, on merit. Um and as for the Olympic boxing scandal, I mean, my God, does it ever end with, with amateur <laughs> boxing? I mean, good Lord. It goes back to at least 1988 and Roy Jones right. and perhaps before that. There was supposed to have been, you know, clear outs since then, changes in scoring mechanisms to try and make it uh, uh, harder to have such outright corruption in, in amateur boxing and specifically Olympic boxing. And, and here we still are. Um you know, like you said, we we knew as much. We figured we knew. Uh, this investigation that you mentioned, it's found that, among other things, a cabal of corrupt officials at the heart of AIBA was able to actually actively force out the unimpeachable ones. They actually identified the ones who had ethics and made sure that they weren't there. <laughs> um, they would supposedly actually, if they weren't judging the, this cabal, if they weren't the ones that were judging a fight, they would sit ringside and they would signal to the other judges how to score. This fight, um, you mentioned Joe Do Joyce, um, Mickey Conlon, of course, also right. was famously foul-mouthed about the judging in his 2016 quarterfinal. Uh, apparently that bout and Joyce's final against Tony Yoka that you mentioned are two of 11 bouts specifically on which particular focus is being placed. And I just, just don't know what you can say at this point. I mean, it's good that the, the present ABA leadership, I believe, commissioned this investigation. Uh, the guy who was president at the time has been banned for life from the sport. But still, it just keeps happening. And whether amateur or professional, the business of boxing is a goddamn disgrace. Um, athletes go in there and they risk their lives. And they're just treated far too often just like chattel. And it's mm. just a constant disgrace. Yeah, big uh, double middle fingers to to all involved in Olympic boxing over the last. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> I was well, to say over the last two uh, two two Olympics, but uh, yeah, let's go all the way back to '88, pretty much. But uh, but also, you're right. Let's uh, whoever was singled out uh, the the like three people they found who are not corrupt. Good for them. Everyone else, uh, double right. Michael Conlon's for you guys. Exactly. All right, uh, time now for the tweet of the week. My turn to pick it, and it's from our buddy Stephen Breadman Edwards. Uh, he's on Twitter at Breadman Boxing. Uh, always has interesting things to say. Well worth a follow if you're not following him. Anyway, Bread tweeted on Monday morning after a day or two of observing the Usyk Joshua post-fight discourse. He wrote, "Quote: Anthony Joshua is no punk, no front runner, and he has heart." Criticism is misdirected. The issue he has is he accepts losing too easy. Mm. He's not stubborn enough in his resistance to a loss. Bradley, Holy, Marquez, etc. You don't beat them until you beat them. Mm. Um, it's a really interesting viewpoint capturing this gray area where you can have heart. You can be not a quitter fighting to the finish, but at the same time being willing to accept defeat. Uh, AJ has heart and desire. 
he doesn't have as much heart and desire as the all-time great warriors we've seen in our sport. He's not exactly a front runner. If he was, he wouldn't have won the Klitschko fight. But he does doubt himself, I think, when he's getting outboxed and, and thus caves a bit. So I would mostly agree with Bred. He does accept losing too easily, although I'd still say the biggest problem is Joshua doesn't quite know who he wants to be in the ring. And as you mentioned last week, Karen, he doesn't fight on instinct. He's thinking in there. And while you're thinking, the other guy is hitting you. Um, so anyway, really interesting tweet from Brad. Opens up some interesting conversation. Your thoughts? Yeah, it was um, a nuanced take and a little bit too nuanced for some of the people who are commenting on it, I noticed. Um, <laughs> imagine that. that. Like, <laughs> imagine on Twitter who would have thought, you know, how, how could you say he accepts losing if he has heart? And But yeah, exactly. I think he was very careful and deliberate with his words there. Um, yeah, like you said, he obviously has heart. He wouldn't have dug himself out against... Klitschko but that body language at the end of the Usyk fight is going to take an awfully long time to to erase um and I'm absolutely with you because I was thinking about it quite a bit after seeing Redman's tweet I I see a boxer who is very talented very strong but I think he might have lost confidence in himself Mm -hmm. and and if he accepts losing a bit more than some of those other names Bred mentioned I wonder if it's because he doesn't see himself on the level of those fighters it's like once he gets he can he can come back once, it seems, in a fight. He came back once against Ruiz the fir- in the first fight right. until Ruiz found an- another gear. He came back against Klitschko, and Klitschko didn't push back against him. He came back a bit against Usyk until right. Usyk found that other gear. It's like he can do it once, and then when they come back at him again, he just he doesn't quite know what to do, and I, I don't know that he has confidence in himself to do it. I, I don't think we want to extrapolate too much on the basis of you know this last fight. You know, but yeah, I I agree. It feels as if I also wonder if he's got that hunger. Does he have what it really takes to go deep into that dark place that the very best do? But the best thing I can say about it, and, and Vladimir Klitschko came out and said this this last week. A lot of people would have said the very same thing about Vladimir right. after his Lehman Brewster fight, and a lot of people did, <laughs> um, and seemingly with some justification. But you know, he—I think that was only like his first or second fight with with Emmanuel, and after that, Emmanuel kind of built him back up, recognized that there were those weaknesses there, figured out how to build around them, and you know, he developed a bit of a nasty streak at times as well during during what then turned out to be a bit of a lengthy title reign. Not saying that AJ has that in him, and Bred certainly isn't writing him off, but perhaps with the right training, and I think Bred talked about this as well in some of his replies. It could be worked around, but we'll see. But yes, at the moment, something's missing there. It's interesting that that you mention Emmanuel because one of the replies I saw to Brad was sort of saying that AJ needed the Emmanuel who was guiding Lennox Lewis in the Tyson fight in his corner in this one, slapping him on the chest a few times. I'm not sure, but it's an interesting thought experiment. What would Emmanuel Stewart have done with Anthony Joshua? Yes, yes. I saw a recommendation that he get together with Teddy Atlas, which I think is a horrible idea. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he needs someone who one. can build up his confidence, not someone who's going to walk in on day one and tell him he's terrible. <laughs> right. Um, and and, try and, to build ca- and come up with a six-year plan of, uh, <laughs> exactly. of rebuilding him before he takes a real fight. Yeah, maybe not exactly. the right uh, approach. Indeed. Uh, all right. Speaking of the elite heavyweight uh the lineal championship is on the line this saturday october 9th on a fox pay-per-view event from the t-mobile arena in las vegas uh, let's preview the third fight 
between Tyson Fury and Deontay Wilder. We all know the history. Uh, first fight, a controversial draw. Fury rising from what sure looked like a knockout blow in the 12th round. Second fight, Fury promises he'll bully the puncher, and he does exactly that, dominating Wilder over seven rounds, with Wilder making an increasingly bizarre assortment of excuses afterward. Uh, a third fight couldn't be scheduled in the COVID year of 2020. Fury tried to move on to face Anthony Joshua. Wilder wouldn't let him. A judge started with Wilder. The fight was supposed to happen over the summer, but Fury contracted COVID. And now, finally, here we are with only a week to go for it to be postponed again. <laughs> um, Eric, I'll ask you about the guy who lost last time. Um, to what extent is Deontay Wilder's legacy at stake in this fight? And, and what does it tell you that he demanded this third fight instead of accepting a big step-aside fee? I guess it tells me that Wilder still has plenty of self-belief, despite mm. the beating Fury put on him last time. He he either believes in himself or he believes in the excuses he made for that outcome, or, or both. Um, it would have been very easy to take however many millions of dollars and, and let Fury fight AJ, but Wilder insisted on this fight. I guess part of what that tells me, to connect it to your first question, is that Deontay believes his legacy is very much tied up in this fight, that if he wants to go down as a great fighter, he has to avenge the loss to Fury. Um, first fight, he probably deserved to lose, but at the same time, he damn near flattened Fury. Yeah. So a, a draw was in some ways a fair result. Second fight, Fury just played dominated him. So I think his legacy is absolutely on the line in this third fight. With one caveat, if he loses but then comes back to score other significant wins, people might conclude, well, Tyson Fury is an all-time great who had his number, and Wilder beat everybody else. He still warrants Hall of Fame consideration, etc. But more likely, if he loses, it stamps him as a good heavyweight who had his moment in the sun and was one of the biggest pure punchers ever, but couldn't do much else besides land that big punch. He's not an all-time great. He's this generation's Ernie Shavers. Whereas if he wins, it completely changes Wilder's legacy. He's yep. in the discussion for the best heavyweight of his time. So for the most part, his place in history is very much on the line Saturday with, a, again, the caveat that there could still be an opportunity for redemption and redefinition right. if he loses. Uh, all right. Now I'll ask you a couple of questions about Fury. Uh, first off, how concerned are you that the Tyson Fury we'll see after a 19-month layoff will not be the same peaking fighter we were seeing in 2019 and 2020? And is there any chance he's mentally distracted by the missed opportunity to beat Anthony Joshua and will view the third Wilder fight as a relative letdown? So he shouldn't, in theory, be paying very much attention to what happened with Joshua and Usyk at all. He should, right. at this stage, be completely and totally focused on Deontay Wilder. But... Tyson Fury marches at the beat of his own drum at the best of times. Um, and as you, as we talked about setting this up, over the last multiple months, he has gone through all kinds of ups and downs in terms of figuring out what's next for him. Um, and this was the fight that having he had moved on from, as, you, as we talked about, right. uh, and was sort of dragged back into. And, and that does play into the first question, because look, he has at times sounded very confident to the point of overconfidence, which is understandable given how the last fight went. Um, but he has been out of the ring, like he said, a long time. He's made no secret of the fact he doesn't do well when he isn't fighting, although he has at least been in the gym for much of the time. But 
Look, he's caught COVID. He's been out and about in Las Vegas. He's been back to the UK. He's been back to the States. He had a new baby, and there were health concerns for that baby at first as well. It's not been the most ideal of camps, you have to figure, or the most ideal of buildups. I will say I would have felt a lot more confident in picking Fury to win again and doing so comfortably had this fight been held a year ago. Um, but talking of confidence in picks, look, it doesn't count for our picks competition. Um, but do you have a quick prediction for this one? Yeah. Um, while I would never count out a puncher like Wilder, I also just don't see how I could pick against Fury here. Um, it's interesting, you know, that this isn't us having to guess about how, how two fighters who've never faced off are, are going to match right. up stylistically. This is a case where we've seen 19 rounds of evidence and Fury has won about 16 of them. Uh, we've seen him outbox Wilder nearly disastrously, but he got through mm-hmm. it. And we've seen him dominate with pressure. And what makes it especially tough for Wilder this time is he can't know what to expect from Fury. Right. My guess is we'll see Fury do a mix of both. You know, maybe come out boxing the first round, then Wilder starts to feel a little comfortable, and so he attacks like hell in round two. Uh, and then Fury backs off and boxes a bit again, and, and it just keeps Wilder so totally unsure of what to expect. Ultimately, I think he stops Deontay again, maybe a couple rounds later than the second fight. I'll say Fury KO9 he overcomes a hairy moment or two, but is ultimately fairly dominant again. How about you? Yeah, pretty similar. I, I will say that the one thing that sort of got in, into my head when this was planned for the summer, uh, at the time I was writing an article for the History Channel about the Max Schmeling Joe Lewis fights. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm, as folks probably are fully aware, um, but in case they're not, when Joe Lewis and Max Schmeling first met, Lewis was the undefeated up and coming next big thing in boxing. Schmeling was decent, but, you know, had been a heavyweight titleist, but wasn't expected to you know, cause much problem, but he found a flaw in Lewis, the fact that Lewis kept pulling his his left hand low uh, when he threw it through a drab, and he exploited that, landed the right hand at will, beat him up terribly, yeah. stopped him late. When they finally had a rematch, Schmeling was just like, well, I did that the first time, I just did that the second time, how hard could it be? And promptly got stopped in the first round. So it is possible, even after a completely dominant performance, to then end up being caught by the guy you completely whooped. Right. Um, no, I'm not equating Deontay Wilder to Joe Lewis before anybody gets upset. <laughs> I don't know. Um, That's what I heard. I heard him say <laughs> that they're basically the same guy. But okay, continue. <laughs> the question is, can Deontay make any of the any of the necessary adjustments? And I think the problem here is that we these weaknesses in Wilder have been there for such a long time that right hand of his has bailed him out so long he's never been able to 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 box backing up um he's always been um you know troubled by a good stiff jab uh he's just never really been able to box i mean even when he had that spectacular win in the first fight against luis ortiz some of the punches he was throwing it was just like my god what the hell is going on in there um and then i'm still trying to figure out what was happening in the second luis ortiz fight um whether it was genius or just good fortune with one big right hand um do I think that Malik Scott is going to be able to teach him to box backing up? No. Is he going to be able to teach him enough tricks that maybe he can avoid being backed up a little bit? Maybe. Um, is he going to teach him, be able to teach him a little bit more that he has a bit more than just that right hand? Just enough to keep Fury a little bit honest? Maybe. Um, we'll see. Uh, 
I think that look, Deontay Wilder is not going to outpoint Tyson Fury, um, and this that's a clip that will replay bunch of times after Deontay Wilder <laughs> outpoints Tyson Fury. But if he's going to win, he's probably going to have to knock him out. And I right. suspect if he's going to do that, even though he flattened him in the final round in the first fight, I think that's going to have to come early. I see a very similar start to what you talked about, um, that Wilder quite possibly after a round or perhaps two, just really go in for it for a few rounds to see what he has there um, and see if he can get him out of there. And if maybe Fury isn't on, on his game 100%, maybe something happens. But then I could see Fury taking it over again. I also see Fury stopping him late. But I kind of have this feeling that Wilder's going to lay it all out there this time and win or lose. And I think lose. I just kind of have this feeling there's going to be a little bit of an element of redemption for Deontay Wilder. Like instead of him just being steamrollered and then hopefully this time he won't then try and blame everybody else or his costume or whatever. He says, you know what? I just gave it a really good effort. He'll still... There'll, there'll be that sense that, you know, you don't have to write off Deontay Wilder like you were talking about, that he still gets to be in the mix with the Dillian Whites and right. maybe the AJs right. and, and that, that kind of level of fighter, just not on Tyson Fury's level. Like you said, this generation's only shavers. That's all right. That'll do. That's right. a pretty good uh, legacy to have. So, yeah. So I think also Fury by late stoppage, maybe Wilder makes it to the end. But somehow I feel that we'll come out of it thinking a little bit better about Deontay Wilder than we did after the last fight. And even though I picked Fury KO9, I am now rooting primarily for Wilder by decision so that we can I know. that clip over and I over. Yeah. Exactly. There you go. It'll be my, what, what is it Chris Mannix said when AJ? <laughs> <laughs> uh, something ferocious finisher. Yeah. 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 There you go. All right. Um, there are several interesting fights on the undercard, either on the pay-per-view or on the free broadcast beforehand. A really good, lengthy evening of fights. It sucks for you and I, but... <laughs> Um, there are three heavyweight fights. Robert Hellenius, Adam Konachki, two. F.A. Ajagba against Frank Sanchez. And Jared Big Baby Anderson against Vladimir Tereshkin. Uh, also, uh, Julian Williams takes on Vladimir Hernandez. Edgar Belanga meets Marcelo Esteban Cocheres. And Robisi Ramirez takes on Orlando Ruiz. Uh, do you have one fight or fighter there that you're particularly interested to see? Yeah, I mean, there are several. This undercard has a, a little bit of everything, but... The one that stands out, I think, is Sanchez versus Ajagba because it's such a total clash of styles. Uh, Ajagba is a really raw, strong puncher, and Sanchez is a tricky Cuban boxer, and it's a case of something's got to give. One guy has to impose his style. I expect that guy will be Sanchez. Um, he's the, the betting favorite. He would be my pick if we were doing picks. But Ajagba is dangerous. He's hard to discourage. I think this is an intriguing fight, and, and it, it sets the table nicely for the main event in terms of presenting a somewhat similar clash of styles. Um, what, what about you? Which fight or fighter here has you intrigued? Uh, Edgar Belanga. I, you know, the KO streak is over, but uh, ended at 17, but he's 18-0. and 0. And, and Kacheris, he's facing someone who on paper is a bit of a step up. You know, the guy's only um, fought outside of Argentina twice, I think, once in Uruguay and then once in L.A., where he put up a really strong effort against Billy Joe Saunders until being stopped. So this feels like this is a big step up um, for Belanga, and I'm quite interested to see how that fight goes. All right, let's turn now to this week's guest. And we welcome back a very good friend of the podcast, someone who's very generous with his time and his insights. He's also... One of the most highly respected trainers in the business and now an excellent ringside analyst for Fox. The one and only Joe Goose. And Joe, thanks so much for joining us again. Thank you, Karen. I really appreciate it. Good to be with you. Yeah. And Eric. 
<laughs> Thank you for including me, Joe. I appreciate that. I didn't want to be left out. <laughs> so let, let, let's start with the uh, the Fury Wilder fight coming up here. You're a trainer. Um, Wilder put a lot of the blame for the second fight on his assistant trainer, Mark Breland. Uh, and he's been making a lot of excuses in general. But at the same time, he did seek out this fight. He insisted on Fury uh, fighting him again. So what do you make of Wilder's mental state coming into this? And, and, and I'm curious what goes through your mind as a trainer when you see a fighter blaming one of his trainers for a defeat? Well, look, that's, that's not an unusual occurrence in the boxing mm-hmm. game. Somebody's going to get the blame on a big loss. Okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's rare that everyone agrees, oh, you know, nobody's at fault here. There's always, there's always something. And when, there's, when the opposite is true, it's, it's more uh, unusual than it is likely. So uh, I understand the situation. I've been in it before. Um, but you know, my, my thoughts are with, uh, Wilder right now, regardless of what's taken place in the past, um, especially concerning fury and the last fight, look, I mean, he made a big change. Wilder made a big change. He hired Malik Scott, uh, untested as a trainer, but a very knowledgeable guy, um, who I trained for probably five years. So I, I know, I, I know Malik Scott very well. He's a, he's a very, he's a high IQ guy, as I like to say. Um, he's a student of the game. He's very observant. He learned a lot in my gym because he came from Philly, which is a little bit different. You know, that's kind of an East coast style. The West coast style is, you know, I, I think you'd agree that it has different qualities to it. Mm-hmm. And, um, that was added to his game with me. Um, and then of course, you know, he, he's, he's had numerous fights in the heavyweight division, probably 30, 40 of them, somewhere close to or closer to 40, if not more. Um, and then he was a, um, also a, um, sparring partner for some of the top heavyweights around the world. So he's, he's gathered a lot of information between his numerous fights between, having uh, the exposure to kind of a West Coast style of fighting, which was kind of foreign to him at the time, but he he really liked and um, infused it into his style. Um, he, um, I think he brings a lot. To, I, I think he's going to bring a lot to the table for Deontay Wilder. Um, Wilder, I think, you know, as I assessed the last fight with Fury, mm-hmm. he had a hard time dealing with the pressure that Fury put on him. And there's certain things that if you're looking at it, certain trainers would look at that fight and say, boy, if, if uh, Wilder just knew how to do this and that, and this and that, he could have diffused some of that offense and then retaliated with his own counter punching. But none of that really existed uh, uh, in, in the wilder game plan. So I think Malik Scott probably is time shared with me. And then his experience throughout the years, he probably realizes that as well. In fact, we've talked about it uh, at length, you know, over the course of uh, the year and he, you know, he agrees. So I, I think Malik has the capability of bringing those new ideas and techniques to wilder. Um, 
and the 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 key is going to be whether Wilder accepts them, and if he does accept these certain technical things that he needs to to uh, to use against Fury, if if he does uh, accept them, then he's going to have to execute them. And now you're talking about a guy who's 35. You know, they they say it's it's hard to teach old dog new tricks, right. and that might be true. But I, I'm thinking if you know, a certain percentage of that um, is imbued in him and he is able to execute some of that technique that he needs to use along with what he already possesses in terms of, you know, a great straight right hand, which is it's a big plus in his favor. It's a, it's a one-punch knockout punch. So if he can diffuse, uh, let's say Fury puts on the same type of, uh, fast pace attack on him, a mauling attack. If 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 uh, Wilder is able to deal with that by virtue of being taught how to deal with it from Malik Scott, and then trying to execute all these different types of things in sparring, uh, and then as well prepared to execute what he's been working on in the ring, I think it could be a different fight, a much different fight. Yeah, and then you throw that, you throw along in with that the revenge factor. I think that's holds a certain amount of sway percentage wise for Wilder. I think he's wants to avenge himself. Um, any great fighter would want to do that, and that's a factor. Right. Um, so I, I think it could be a completely different fight if, again, Wilder is accepting of what he's being taught right now, which I, I firmly believe I know what it is because like I said I'm I'm very well acquainted with Malik Scott and how he approaches things. So that being said, I think that it could be a much more competitive fight than the second fight for sure for Wilder. Right. And mm-hmm. sort of factoring into that, on the other side you've got Tyson Fury who's understandably confident, perhaps overconfident. Would do you even worry a little bit about complacency on his side, particularly like you said, given that Wilder's perhaps improving, he's got that punch. And, and what what kind of a game plan would you expect to see from Tyson Fury this time around? Well, he's used two different game plans against Wilder, and I think the second game plan was infinitely better than the first. Mm. So I think I think he'd be foolish to abandon that. Uh, but to backtrack a little bit on about whether he's a little complacent or not. Um, look, when you have your off time and you're not in camp, uh, it's okay to be complacent, <laughs> you mm. know. But once once you get your marching orders and they say get to camp, leave your family, friends, and all the fun behind you, we're going to go on lockdown for two months into this camp, which I, I firmly believe he's done because Sugar Hill wouldn't, wouldn't put up with anything less than that. Uh, plus, you know, he's, uh, he's probably got considering how well he performed in the last fight he, and engineered by Sugar Hill. So I think he's probably got the attention of Sugar Hill and hangs on his every word. Uh, because whenever you're successful like that, I know fighters will cling to your, your word, uh, because it worked for them so well. So they don't want to jinx themselves and upset the apple cart. And so they, they comply. And I think he's probably 120% into this camp with sugar Hill. And he's, he's most likely done everything asked of him. So I, I would 
I would suspect that he's going to come in 100%. And as far as the game plan, I, again, uh, I, I think it would be foolish to uh, uh, abandon something that worked so well and was so effective. And actually, the fight was very one-sided. So, right. you know, it's hard to say, go back to the other strategy from the first fight. I, I, I don't think so. Because there's not a lot of in-between. Either mm. you're going to box a guy or you're going or you're going to press the guy. Now, mm. there is some there is some wiggle room in between those two styles, obviously. But, you know, as far as the main objective are you going to box and counter punch or are you going to press and i think the press worked really well for fury in the last fight so but then now what now it's going to be up to malik scott and fury to devise a game plan but you can't just devise something in your head or on a blackboard you have to devise a game plan and then talk about what you can do to nullify and offset if that fight turns out to be like the first fight where Fury is just all over him, what can you do to nullify that and then put yourself in a position to counter it and score yourself? So that's going to be the test. Is it too late in, in Wilder's career to, you know, uh, 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 assimilate that type of technique and then actually execute it? It might be a little difficult, but they've had a long time together. So, if he can pull off 50% of what's needed, that might be uh, a, a big contributing factor to him doing much better in this fight. Mm. Interesting. Um, so, so Joe, you currently train one notable heavyweight in Chris Ariola. Plus, uh, you, you mentioned to me the other day, I think that you have an Armenian heavyweight prospect in your gym as well. So, uh, so, so you have a vested interest in this division. How would you assess the overall health of the heavyweight division right now, coming off of uh, Usyk's big win over, over Joshua, going into this Fury-Wilder fight? Uh, how do you look at the state of the division? Is, are, are we at kind of a high point in in interest in heavyweights right now? You know, I, I, I got to tell you, I think of all the weight divisions, normally the heavyweight division draws the biggest, has the biggest attention drawn to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and for good reason. They're, they're big guys and it's, it's powerful looking stuff. And, you know, I think we all like the home run, you know, we like the long bomb in football. <laughs> we like the big school. And I think that's the same thing in, in the heavyweight division. You come to expect uh, a lot of, you know, uh, heavy bombs thrown and uh, with two big guys. I don't think there's anything more fun to watch when two skilled big guys are in there. That being said, well, you, you can tell the heavyweight division is like most divisions are always in flux. The changing of the guard happens all the time. There's very few long-reigning champions um, uh, that are out there right now. I mean, Wilder was, you know, held it for quite a while. Then he got bumped off. You know, Fury's got his run right now. Joshua had his run, got bumped off, regained it, got bumped off again. You know, uh, it's it's a lot of change in the hands of these titles with these big guys. Um, I like that, though, in a way, because it's like unexpected and then intriguing. But I, I think you've got a lot of great heavyweights out there right now. You've got a lot that are, are coming up, too. Um, uh, but for the most part, the guy at the top, I think they're exciting fighters. I, I love the way Fury brings, you know, excitement and, um, you know, talent and grittiness to the heavyweight division. I love how Wilder was that you know, consummate one punch knockout guy that they're hard to come by one punch knockout guy. So I, I loved how he would dispatch people 
uh, rather quickly. When he, if you get hit by that right hand solidly, you're in trouble. You know, you had King Tong Ortiz, the Southpaw, who gave us some great competitive fights with Wilder. Uh, uh, you know, you've got Anthony Joshua, Usyk now. There's a lot of guys out there that make this game good. I, um, I would say the the Usyk Joshua fight was not as exciting as it could have been, um, but it was tactical, and Usyk did what he had to do to win uh, the title. And man, it was a, it was shocking. I think to a lot of people, I don't think I, I think there were people in my gym that were saying Usyk's going to win this fight, and. Mm. You know, not a lot of people vehemently disagreed with him. They thought he he definitely was. He's a he's a tremendous talent. You know, he's got great angles. He's a southpaw, difficult to deal with. He's big himself. He's not some small guy either. Um, and I, I just thought it was a brilliant fight he fought. Uh, again, not the most exciting. Not a lot of fireworks. And uh, you know, I, I I really don't know if uh, if uh, Joshua. Um, you know, he's going to probably look at that tape and wish he had done a lot more, to tell you the truth. Mm. Um, moving on to the other major topic in boxing right now, we've got to get your take on uh, Manny Pacquiao's retirement. Uh, you were on the call during the, his fight with Ordenis Ugas, and you said at the end of that quite plainly that you felt it was time that Manny should retire. And it's always sad when a great career ends. But when you look back now, when you look at the style in which he fought, the quality of opposition he fought, is it actually kind of remarkable that he lasted as long as he did? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's a question. Look, uh, I mean, especially since I think he started out at like, you know, flyweight, you know, yeah, 108 yeah. pounds. It's pr- pretty, pretty damn amazing. Um, it wasn't like De La Hoya, where De La Hoya was a 130 pounder, at, but he, I always said De La Hoya was a welterweight in a 130 pound body. Mm. See, he was just. He was just waiting to fill out. Manny, not so much. He was always a smaller-statured guy. Um, I think, though, that it's a perfect time for him to retire. Look, um, this is this is a rough game for guys in their 20s and 30s. He's in his, what, 43. Yeah. He's been in a lot of tough battles, fought some of the greatest fights and fighters that we're going to see. His, his legacy is uh, just going to be hard to, hard to beat that. Um, uh, and I think after the Thurman victory, to tell you the truth, and I, and I know this firsthand, after the Thurman victory, which was, again, uh, he might have been a favorite in that, but, but you know, I mean, he, you couldn't consider that a strong favorite. Thurman is a very, very good. And Thurman proved that in the second half of the fight. He came on strong. It gave Manny a real battle. Of course, Manny caught him late in that fight with that body shot, which I thought sealed it for him. But yeah. Manny, Manny even said after that fight, hey, you know, I know this firsthand. Don't he told the powers that be don't don't even think about getting me a fight for another year. He was hmm. that was that took its toll on him, and um, that might have been his final curtain call in terms of him pulling that rabbit out of his hat. And uh, he just couldn't do it against Ugas. Uh, Ugas fought a very strategic fight. He knows how to fight southpaws. Uh, which is a big advantage if you can fight a southpaw because Manny has so many great angles. He's very confusing to fight. But I just think the the the, the speed, the power, the legs, everything was just short of what we normally expect to see from Manny that night. And I think it was. I think it's time. I mean, why do you need, with all the fame, fortune, and everything else associated with Manny Pacquiao? Why? 
inflict any more damage on yourself because you know at 43 you don't absorb the punishment as well as you do at 23 or 33 it's a perfect time for him to go and uh, i i'm like i said I, I forgot i had said that on the air but uh i'm glad you reminded me <laughs> yeah because i <laughs> I, I, I believe me, I've retired guys a lot earlier than 43. It's, <laughs> yeah. a, da- it, it, it's, a, it's a dangerous, you know, uh, age group to be in when you're fighting guys at that weight, especially heavyweights. Maybe they can pull that off later mm-hmm. on in life. But uh, the little guys, it's hard because once you lose that little bit of that microsecond timing, offensively and defensively, it's when it becomes very dangerous for you. That uh, loss of timing, um, when you have that timing, uh, is what keeps you in the game. When you lose a little bit of it, it's what starts to do damage to you. You you just a a little half step behind, and you get hit with stuff you never got hit with before. Amongst other drawbacks to being 43. But yeah, it's a great time to retire. Hey, listen, I, I think he's given us enough blood, sweat, and tears to last for about 10 guys. You know what I mean? He's, 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 he's poured, he's poured everything into it. Never in a dull fight. He's always out there battling for the win and somehow always pulled it off most all the time. Uh, I, I can't give him enough credit. And the fact that he even had this type of longevity is, is amazing in and of itself. Yeah, agree completely. Very well said. And so on the subject of uh, retired all-time greats, uh, I want to ask you about your uh, frequent broadcast mate, Lennox Lewis. I'm hoping I'm saying it right. Lennox, not Lennox anymore. Um, He's been uh, the subject of some talk as a possible next opponent on the Mike Tyson exhibition tour. Do you have any guess or or inside info as to whether Lennox might actually do it? And, And what's your level of concern, Joe, that something really bad's going to happen if this seniors tour continues. Well, look, I, I think the key word of this is Tyson's exhibitions. Okay. Mm-hmm. If you said full on fight, three minute rounds, uh, 10 rounds, then I think it gets a little dicier. But I mean, if you look at the Roy Jones Tyson exhibition, which mm-hmm. is what it was, I think there were enough safeguards in place and I think everyone concerned if something were to go awry in the exhibition, quote unquote, um, I think they'd be Johnny on the spot to, to make sure nobody absorbed some sort of extraordinary punishment. I think they, they keep it. They're trying to keep everything at the exhibition level. So that being said, if Lennox were to train hard, if he were to, you know, because you can't just walk into it. I didn't like what I saw with Holyfield. That was a real fight, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, where, you know, anything and everything was allowed within the legal limits of the, the sport. Um, but I think with with the key word here being exhibition, uh, look, and all, all protective protocols in place, Considering the age of both these guys, I look that uh, that could be a fun thing, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think both of them are old enough to know that neither one of them want to get into a full-scale uh, boxing match where anything goes, and it uh, they're looking for knockouts. And 
I don't think that's the case. I may be wrong, but assuming the the first uh, example that I laid out is true, that it's an exhibition that protocols are going to be in place and that they're both, you know, understand the rules of engagement considering this exhibition. I, I It could be fun to watch, but am I a big fan of full-on, all-out fights for guys at that age group? Not really. Right. No. right. But again, an exhibition, I, 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 I could live with that for sure. Yeah. Okay, but has Lennox specifically said anything to you uh, about uh, about that? Uh, do, do, you, do you know anything about it or just the same rumors that we've all heard? Probably the same thing that you guys have heard. Um, okay. Now, of course, I do talk to Lennox. I do talk to Lennox and anything that I, he might have said to me in private, I sure. I've probably already forgotten because <laughs> I know it's private. But, you know, okay. So, uh, you know, I was raised by a homicide detective, so I got to keep my mouth shut. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but, 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 yeah, listen, I, I, uh, I know Lennox uh, has been keeping himself in good shape. I saw okay. that, you know, I'm, I'm pretty good when I see somebody lose some weight. He's, he's lost an uh, amount uh, 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 big enough for me to recognize it. I go, oh, man, you've lost some weight. Yeah, I've been training. I've been working out. So, you know. Obviously, he's got something in mind, uh, and I'll leave it at that. Okay, that's fair. All right, let's finish mm-hmm. with your take mm-hmm. on one of our fights that we have coming up here on Showtime. Uh, Canelo Alvarez against Caleb Plant. It's about a month away. I'm curious how live of an underdog you consider Caleb Plant to be. And did that little press conference scuffle teach you anything, or can sometimes we make too much of that kind of thing? Well, I will tell you, I purposely did not watch it. Okay. I purposely didn't watch it. I, I, I really loathe uh, guys actually hitting each other at a press conference. My God, these guys are getting paid millions of dollars to do it in the ring with gloves on under the appropriate rules of engagement. I am not a big fan. Look, I, I just, I've maybe used this example once or twice. One of the greatest fights that I was ever involved with and was Corrales Castillo Mm -hmm. and these two guys um, literally were ready to give up their life in the ring that night. Okay. They, they fought tooth and nail hammer and tongue. And it was, it was quite exquisite in the, the controlled mayhem in that ring. It was, it was beautiful thing to watch. That being said, we did an extensive uh, press tour and you could have seen two more respectful guys towards each other. They laugh, they hug, they go, but all the while, anybody with any sense knew that these two guys were killers in the ring, but they were appropriately, um, gentlemen outside the ring. And that really disturbs me. Um, the unsportsmanship of, of that whole ordeal. And it's why I didn't watch it. I really Gotcha. I really loathe uh, that sort of stuff. Um, I think it's totally unnecessary, uncalled for, and I'm a I'm a believer in uh, being a gentleman to your opponent, no matter what you might think or what you know you're going to do or how you may talk about that guy behind closed doors in the gym, as we all do. But when you get out there in the public, you know you present yourself in the in, in best way possible, and I think that word gentleman is appropriate because we don't want to see you fight at a press conference. We want to see you in the ring and, uh, and we want to see you represent the sport well and with class 
And, um, you know, every two each is home, let them do what they want to do. But I personally, I didn't watch it because I really am not a fan of fist fights at a press gotcha. conference. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. What about when they do get in the ring, given, you know, Caleb's got a style as, as a boxer. If there's a weakness in that Canelo armory, it might be sometimes against those kind of boxers. Do you think that Caleb's a fairly live dog going into this? Yeah. Oh, I, I think I think he's very much uh, a live dog, uh, very much so. Um, and I say that just based on performances of some of Canelo's um, opponents that he's faced, um, and some that I felt were in, were not maybe. Uh, at the same caliber as Canelo, but lasted. Mm. Um, and, you know, we can go over the names. I don't think it's necessary. Uh, on the other hand, he's dispatched quite a few guys of good, great quality Canelo um, that, you know, he, he deserves the reputation of being a guy that is pretty much he'll take you out given the opportunity. That said, he's, he's probably pound for pound in the top three guys out there right now, Canelo. So he, he deserves all the praise and, 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 uh, honors that he, that, that he's been bestowed upon him. That's I think Caleb plant, although the Caleb Truax fight was a little disappointing, I think in, uh, I think even, you know, plant would have told you a little disappointing in his performance. Now, that being said, he had a terribly bad, uh, knuckle hand, and he had that operated on, by the way, a few mm. months ago. Now, I will tell you, if you feel like you have a certain degree of power and you've got bad hands and they need surgery on them, uh, that I, you, you could use that as a legitimate reason why he may have punched less hard than I thought or I would have expected mm. to him against Truax. That being said, um, this camp that Caleb Plant indifferent than any other camp he's had before? Absolutely. Okay, I know that as a fact. Um, he's had strength coaches. He's uh, been on a strict uh, diet. He had that surgery on his hand. I talked to him about it. He says it's 100%. It's making all the difference in the world uh, in his delivery and his punching power because he he's not expecting the pain in his hand when he you know, sometimes you can just hit something very gently on a, on a guy's body, and if he's got a bad knuckle, man, it sends a shockwave through your arm and everywhere else, and it's it's very painful. And then you get become hesitant, and then you lose a weapon. So having that fixed, uh, I I know he's got strength coaches involved, he's got dietitians involved, he's got uh, a great trainer with Don House. Um, I just think he's going to come out of the end of this camp. Being and I've done this before. Guys that you know have proven to be good. I mean, Caleb's a, a world champion. That he um, has probably trained harder than any other fight he's had. And I'm sure if you asked him two a year ago or whatever, have you trained any harder for a fight than this one? He'd say no. But I guarantee if you asked him today, have you trained any hard, harder for a fight than this one? He'd say absolutely not. This is probably the greatest camp I've ever had. I, I've discussed it with him. So. That being said, he's a big guy. Caleb Plant is a big guy. He's a smart fighter. Um, he's got, look, let's face it. The guy who beat him, Canelo, the most easily was Mayweather. And what did he use? 
these great boxing counterpunching skills. Am I putting Kalen Plant in the same category as Mayweather? No, no, nobody is in that you know slot. Just Mayweather alone. But if you use that as a blueprint and implement some of his successful maneuvers in the ring against Canelo, uh, even though that fight took place a long time ago, but Canelo has not really changed a lot since then either. He pretty much uses the same style, same tactics, fight in and fight out. So he's, you could say he's predictable, but even if you, even though he is predictable in what he's going to bring to the table, he's still dangerous in every which way. So, I mean, great, he's predictable, but can you stop what <laughs> you're predicting he's going to do? And that's the thing. Can Caleb Plant and his trainers implement a strategy that capitalizes on maybe some of the weaknesses of Canelo and take advantage of those and uh, thereby gaining a little bit of a foothold uh, and uh, able to offset some of Canelo's best qualities. That's what you're looking to do when you devise a strategy. I, I think Plant has got the athletic ability to, if they're implementing these strategies, to uh, take hold of them and, and then execute them. Of course, that starts with sparring, executing these things. But yeah, um, I think it's going to be. I think it's going to be more competitive. Look, uh, Callum Smith went 12 rounds with with uh, Canelo, right? I mean, he went 12 rounds and he had a injured uh, what was it, left arm? Yeah, an injured left arm, and he made it through 12 rounds. You know, um, I'd say if you're going to get kind of a comparison of like records and height and and uh, boxing style, that would be the best comparison um, for me. But did Smith have any um, offensive firepower, especially since he had that left arm taken out, one of his weapons? Uh, no, but he, he managed to go 12 rounds. So to me, I, I think that this is definitely whatever the the, the total is on, on the number, on the betting line, I, I think this is an over fight. Um, you know, they may have it at, you know, nine, 10, I don't know what the line is, but I, I think it's an over fight. It could be a distance fight and, um, it could be, there could be a, a, a nice chunk of rounds that go to plant in this fight. Um, who's the favorite Canelo? Should he be the favorite? Absolutely. Should he have a lot of confidence going in this fight? Sure. The way he's been performing, you know, so plants got, uh, plants got a little road to hoe ahead of him, but. Um, I think in a perfect world for Caleb Plant, um, this might surprise a lot of people. Well, you, you got me uh, looking up my online sports book right in the middle of uh, what you were saying there, uh, Joe. Uh, it is, in fact, nine and a half is the line for the over/under on on rounds on this. So uh, I, as soon as we hang up here, I think I think I'm getting to bet in on the over because Joe Goosen told me to. Well, I- Hell, maybe I should get into a new profession. I call that one pretty good. <laughs> you sure yeah, did. Right, you did. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I and just just FYI, I do not. I've never gambled. I'm I'm afraid to gamble. I like I said, I I hate to lose money unnecessarily. You know. Oh well, I but, love um, to lose money unnecessarily. Yeah. So <laughs> right. Well, listen. Well, that's what happens to a lot of gamblers. They lose a lot of money. You know. I mean, casinos and bookmakers know what they're doing. The uh, they 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 exist because they're winning. So yeah. I've never really liked the odds. But right. uh, well, I, you'll be happy to know that I bet small. As uh, I, I keep it responsible. As yeah, uh, I, I use the term when Kieran and I do our gambling talk that I, I risk the cost of one large cheese pizza typically on on a bet. That's about it. <laughs> well, that, that would be about my limit too. You know. Okay. I, I, but again, 
I listen, I, uh, I, I marvel at some of these guys that, that made these bad and they, they hit the numbers and they're now, let me ask you this on the Caleb Plant nine and a half. Was it the favorite to go over? Was it a minus or was it a plus to go over? It's actually a slight plus. Uh, the one, the one that I'm looking at, plus 105 to go over, minus 130 to go under. And and if you're mm. picking the the Caleb Plant upset, that currently pays six to one. If you think he can actually pull off the win. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's tempting. That's tempting for a lot of people, I'm sure, fans <laughs> of, of of Caleb. But uh, that's that's good to know. And I'm really really excited about this and i think i think two great fighters two world champions and going against each other i love that i love that i love the idea of it and i and i'm usually not disappointed when you get two guys that don't want to lose very badly you know, they want right. to win you know to the, to the utmost so i i like seeing fights like that when there's something on the line and both of these guys obviously canela will fuck you at every second given the opportunity and Plant is uh, no shrinking violet either. He's he uh, he's he's an opportunistic uh, fighter. He'll, you give him you give him some rope, he'll he'll take it, and and uh, you you give him slight openings, he'll fill it. So I, I I'm ex- I'm very excited about this. I'm excited about both fights. Too. I think with Malik Scott in the corner, we're going to get a different look from Wilder. I think it's going to be more competitive all the way around. Um, I think he's probably had a great camp. I say the same for. Uh, Caleb Plant has probably had the best camp he's ever had. And then, uh, look, Fury, Fury's with a great trainer. They've got great minds behind him in these fights and these camps. And, uh, and of course, uh, Canelo with uh, uh, Eddie Reynoso. So, you know, you've got not only great fighters, you've got great cornermen guiding this uh, ship through uh, some pretty rough seas. So I, I, I'm, I think both of these fights are killer fights. Really are. I'm, I'm, I'm very anxious to see him. Joe Goosen, trainer, broadcaster, and now odds maker. Thank you very much, <laughs> as always, for your time. And thank you for being so generous with your time, Joe. We appreciate it. Uh, no, no. Anytime, guys. I love talking to you guys. I know what you're talking about. Number one, you ask the right questions. And I appreciate you guys. So uh, much luck on your and success on your show and the future. Okay? Thanks, Thanks so much, much Joe. Joe. We really appreciate always it. Always great talking to you. You're welcome. Our thanks again to Joe, who really does always bring his A-game when he comes yep. on the podcast. I, I just love having him on here. Um, all right. We will wrap up the show with the top five challenge. And I'm not doing the challenge you assigned me, Eric, uh, which is to come up with a celebrity deathmatch type series of matchups between boxing non-participants, partly because I'm trying to find every excuse I can not to do <laughs> <Yes>. that. <laughs> uh, and I just don't want to um but also because i feel like we were given a temporary out by the official retirement announcement of manny pacquiao so instead of me doing that one top five list we're going to do two top five lists in one um going back to the old snake draft format that we use frequently on the old hbo pod so we're going to draft the best performances of manny pacquiao's career uh, with the goal for each of us being to assemble five fights that would illustrate to a boxing newcomer while Manny is one of the all-time greats. So in the end, we'll have two top five lists, a combined top ten list of sorts. Uh, nice guy that I am, Eric, because I am dodging your carefully <laughs> considered uh, top five challenge from last week. I will allow you to give you the first uh, to have the first pick in the draft. Uh, then I get the next two, and so on. So, what are you taking at number one overall? 
just know that you giving me the first pick in the draft and being a nice guy does not uh, earn my respect back. I've, I've lost all respect for you. You're scared. You're scared of the list I assigned yep. you. But, uh, I'm okay. it. I'm ducking it. <laughs> um, so, okay. I knew I was getting the first pick. We had decided that uh, in advance. Uh, so this is the only pick in the draft I really planned out since I don't know what will okay. be off the board later. But I did think this one through. And maybe you'll hate me for it. Maybe you'll love me for it because it means you don't need to select your man crush getting beaten up. But I'm taking the KO 12 win over Miguel Cotto. I think this is the most complete demonstration of Pacquiao's greatness. You got four rounds of absolute thrills back and forth. Mm -hmm. Then you got Manny beating up a Hall of Fame bound fighter for the next eight rounds while giving away size, still hurting him over and over. Just a quintessential prime Manny performance and arguably all things considered maybe the best win of his career I am glad that you picked it because I think it is the number one and I didn't want to for the exact reason that you (laughs) that you said but it had to be at the top so I am glad you had first pick and I am glad you picked that one um my first pick the number two uh is the same year as actually six months earlier um may the 2nd uh, 2009 ko2 over ricky hatton mm-hmm. um not that necessarily anyone was expecting hatton to beat pacquiao going going into this fight but the sheer utter utter brutal concussiveness of that knockout uh the way that hatton was just laid out with that one punch that had everyone going back into the media room afterwards like, oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah. And and the talk had been about Cotto up next. And I remember saying to people, I love Miguel Cotto. I don't want Miguel Cotto to fight that money Pacquiao. And with good reason. So uh, I, I think probably just in terms of it being top of a lot of the highlight reels and just a real sign of just the devastating power that he, that he carried, particularly at that time, I'm going to pick that Hatton fight. Yeah, I, I never tire of watching the replay of that knockout. It's just Ugh. just brutal. Yeah. Ugh. And uh, my next one uh, came just a little before that one. Um, uh, December 6th, uh, 2008, TKO8, Oscar De La Hoya. That was, they were going into that fight. Don't forget, uh, Manny was fighting, I think, down at 135 before that, and Oscar at 154. This was a catchweight fight that was the brainchild of Larry Merchant. Going into that fight, I remember saying, and I was asked for my pick, there's no way that Oscar loses this unless Oscar's shot. Oscar was shot. Mm. And he was just perfect for Manny at that stage, as it turns out. He just had nothing left to give. I think whatever he had left, the strain of squeezing himself back down to 47, just took it out of him. Manny just tore into him, even as he hated doing it in such Manny Pacquiao fashion because he loved the guy. Freddie Roach, if you remember, before that eighth round, had to implore Manny to step it up because I know you like the guy, but you got to finish him off. And he went out there and finished him off. Uh, A sad end for Oscar, um, but this was a a performance that really catapulted Manny into the mainstream. Yeah, absolutely. This was the one that made him a super-duper star. Um, And uh, the two that you took would have been among the next on my list, but you did not take my actual next on my list okay. after I took Kodo. Uh, I think all things considered his, his second greatest win, second greatest performance is the second fight with Eric Morales, uh, where yep. I stopped him in the 10th round, uh, avenging a, a defeat not long earlier. Uh, he 
that was that loss to Morales was what sent Manny back to the gym feeling yep. like he needed more. He needed to learn more. Uh, this is uh, the famous uh, Manila ice fight that uh, Fred Sternberg told us about <laughs> that he added this new weapon. Um, but really what he what he added was newfound use of the right hand in a way he hadn't before right hook um, and he got the stoppage and it wasn't easy. He was struggling early in the fight. It looked like it might be a repeat of the first one, but then Manny turned it, turned it around and just a remarkable performance where he took a still pretty close to his prime, Eric Morales. And uh, I believe became the first to stop him. Um, I, I'm not looking I at his so. box track right now, but I'm pretty sure he had never been stopped before. And yeah, just a phenomenal win for Manny. Yep. This was the fight in which you could almost see halfway through Manny was like, Oh my God, I've got a right hand. <laughs> yep. I could use that too. And you could actually see there's like that delineation, I think somewhere around right round five, where it all finally starts to click and he stops flinging, just flinging the left hand at him. That was the moment I I agree with you where he actually began to become a, a really well-rounded championship boxer. Yeah. Uh, so for my next pick, I will go with one from before Manny really had a right hand when he was still just a one hand puncher. Uh, but boy, what a, puncher he was with that left hand against Marco Antonio Barrera in their first fight. This was, again, he he catapulted in stages, and the Oscar fight that, as you mentioned, was the one that took him from megastar within boxing to, like, actual mainstream sports star. This was the fight that took him from okay, he's got the attention of the boxing world, but we don't really know that he's a pound-for-pound guy or anything like that. And this one woke us up and said, wow, this Manny Pacquiao might really be something special. He was a clear underdog, moving up in weight, and he dominated Barrera. And Barrera was coming off some of the best wins of his career. You can't say he was in any sort of decline that we knew of at the time. So just a phenomenal one-sided win there over Barrera. Yeah, this would have been next on my list. Um it was remarkable to watch this and the great Marco Antonio Barrera was almost asking for the fight to be stopped at various stages there where he was taken yep. over to the corner, having a cut looked at. And it was just astonishing to watch like, my God, what is this guy <laughs> doing to Marco Antonio Barrera? It, it was just, just the raw visceral power. There was, was a sight to behold. Um, for my next one, I will pick, all the way back before that one, when he was even less complete of a fighter, the first time that most of us were exposed to him. 2001. Can you believe us? <laughs> June 2001, Leila Lodwaba uh, came in at the last minute as a replacement uh, fighter to take on Lodwaba. Had only been in the States a few weeks. Had only been working with Freddie Roach a couple of weeks. Barely nobody on the HBO table especially George Foreman could even pronounce his name nobody knew anything about him he was just a left hand on a body at that point really the rest of him <laughs> the rest of him was was just might have had he might have had well had a little t-rex arm on his right hand there it was just flinging left hands at Laduaba but just the sheer force of it Laduaba who and it's worth we said it before and it's worth saying again was a good fighter going into that fight was ruined by it. Uh, this was, if you want the example of just the basic raw material that Freddie Roach took and turned into something else, the Ladwaba fight has to be it, I think. Yeah, the only thing I would add is, you know, that you're selling him a little short saying he was just a left hand on a body because that leaves out the frosted tips on the head, which was the other <laughs> thing right. about that Manny Pacquiao that you can't forget. Yes. Um I- there's quite a few others from which to choose next. I think 
what should we pick next? I'm going to go with an opponent who really isn't necessarily on the level uh, of some of the other people that we've mentioned here, uh, but nonetheless was part of the great Manny Pacquiao evolution and particularly the start of him really moving up the weight classes. Uh, June 28, 2008, TKO9, David Diaz. Uh, this was when he stepped up to lightweight um, uh, against a guy who'd actually had a couple of upset performances himself. Wasn't expected to necessarily be a huge threat to Pacquiao, but there was that question. There was this guy who, you know, started at 112, who'd moved up. He'd been fighting at 126, only recently moved up to 130. Could he deal with going up to lightweight? Ha, ha, ha. Well, yes, of course he could. Absolutely annihilated poor old David Diaz. Absolutely dominating performance. Diaz could barely land a glove on him. The one good thing I'll say about David Diaz, who's a terrific guy, I remember talking to him a couple of years later and mentioned the Manny Pacquiao fight, and he laughed. And he said, ha, ha, I was robbed. Um, because, yeah, there was absolutely no question <laughs> about who won this fight, right. and he winning every minute of every round until it was mercifully stopped. So that's the first one that uh, you've brought up that I didn't have uh, within my own personal top 10, but it, it was something I stopped and, and thought about for a second. And it's just because, as you said, the, the level that Diaz was on was not as high as everyone else who's making my list here, but that was one hell of a performance from uh, Manny and uh, one of the best post-fight interviews ever, David Diaz cursing up a storm about <laughs> just what a buzzsaw he walked into and he yeah. knew it. And uh, yeah, that was, that was really fun. Um, all right, so nobody has mentioned the name Juan Manuel Marquez yet. We got to get a Marquez fight uh, into uh, into this little time capsule here, and I guess I would go with their second fight, uh, which Manny officially got the win. It really could have gone either way, yeah. um, but I think it was the most entertaining of their first three fights. Nothing comp- quite competes with the fourth for entertainment, but I'm not putting right. that on my best Manny performances list. Exactly. Um, this was a thriller, and it was at the point where Manny had started to add features to his game. He wasn't just one-handed anymore like he was in the first fight with Marquez. Um, and he really just had to bite down and and exchange at times with Marquez, and they just went back. It, it's just tremendously entertaining, and if you appreciate just how great Juan Manuel Marquez was, you can watch this fight and say, wow, Manny Pacquiao must have been pretty damn good, too. Yeah, and it's very difficult, isn't it, to figure out what to do with the Marquez fights if you're picking a list of great Pacquiao performances, because even the ones that he won, he won by closer margins than he'd be anybody else by. Uh, there was just something, they weren't great, they weren't so much pa- great Pacquiao performances, it's just great fights. Mm-hmm. And this was the one, I believe, that, that Marquez hurt him pretty badly, and he actually had to, like you said, he had to bite down, he actually had to really come back a little bit in in this fight. Um there was just something. Pacquiao, one of the things that just made him so difficult to fight was he was just impossible to time. You just never knew what he was going to do next. Marquez could. Um, I was fortunate enough to be ringside for all four of them, and I just I can't quite remember, but I have a feeling that I gave Pacquiao two and three hmm. by like a point or two or something incredibly close. Um they were all very, very, very difficult fights to sc- score up until the last one, obviously. But um, all all of them were remarkable performances. And you talked earlier about how Pacquiao was almost universally loved and, until, you know, there was this 
period where some people started to turn against him. I think it was either the second or the third Marquez fight that was the first time that mm-hmm. I, I heard a large proportion of the crowd booing him because Marquez had become a, a really big standard bearer for the Mexican fight fans against Manny Pacquiao at that point. Yeah, it was the third fight I think you're thinking of, and uh, I strongly disagree with your scoring of that fight. I, I thought Marquez won do. that one pretty clearly, uh, but uh, I guess that's a, a topic for another time. Um, so I have one fight left here. I've got, here's what's in my uh, in my top five that uh, I've secured in this draft so far. I've got Cotto, the second Morales fight, the first Barrera fight, and the second Marquez fight. I could pick the first Marquez fight, but I've already got one Marquez, so my mm-hmm. uh, my Pacquiao newbie uh, doesn't need to see two fights against the same guy there. I, I'll, I'll uh, not include the KO3 over Morales for the same reason. I think mm-hmm. I will go with the win over Keith Thurman. Uh, nope. the, the <laughs> Good. I took something you wanted, clearly. <laughs> um, just, uh, you know, the, the, the last great Manny performance and to see him in his 40s still performing at that level. I know he wasn't technically officially an underdog by the time the fight started, but he was when the fight was signed, at least before the Pacquiao money uh, moved the line a bit there. Um, this was a, a, a pretty much in his prime borderline pound for poundish kind of guy. And Manny was 40 years old and won the fight. And uh, it was close, but I don't think it was controversial. I think it was pretty clear that that Pacquiao had earned this victory, starting with the knockdown very early in the fight and then uh, doing enough to get across the finish line at his age. Just uh, a remarkable win. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, those three words there at his age were what made this, uh, you know, worthy of inclusion. As it turned out, the last win he would have in his career, do that at 41 years old against a very good fighter mm-hmm. um, and, and to become the first person to hang an L on him, I think is, is really notable. And so in a similar vein, you picked his last win. I'll pick his last stoppage. Lucas mm-hmm. Matisse, his okay. last great, his last great uh, final demonstration of Pacquiao power. He hadn't scored a knockout, well, actually, it was since Kodo, wasn't it? It was something right. like it was something like uh, what nine years, something ridiculous like that. Yeah. Um, and for one night against Batiste, a guy who obviously was a little bit past his peak, uh, but nonetheless at his peak had been a formidable fighter himself. Uh, and like you said, the next Miguel Cotto, I can't do a shade of her. I don't. I can't. <laughs> uh, the next Manny Pacquiao, I can't do it. Um, <laughs> And he was, and interestingly, it was it, it also because it came after the fight that he didn't lose to Jeff Horn, but he still, well, he shouldn't have lost to Jeff Horn, but he still didn't look good in the win against, in, in his performance against Jeff Horn. That was officially yeah. a loss. So, so much so, in fact, that he actually split somewhat from Freddie Roach for this one fight. And it really felt as if it was over. But for just that one night, he just had that little bit of Pacquiao magic again and was able to stop uh, uh, Lucas Matisse. So I'm going to, I'll put that in there. Perhaps not necessarily his greatest night, but his the last time that he didn't get to hear the final bell, the last time we saw what it was like for Manny Pacquiao to score a stoppage win. Yeah, I mean, I, I think if, you know, again, it's hypothetical where someone is seeing just the five Manny Pacquiao fights that you're showing them this, at least you're giving them a, a glimpse at uh, what he could still do toward the end. Uh, and, and that wasn't, I wasn't expecting him to stop Matisse and dominate him quite like he did. So it's interesting. So the ones that didn't get uh, drafted that uh, that I thought could have were 
that first Marquez fight that was officially mm-hmm. a draw, the third fight with Morales where he just absolutely kicked Morales's ass and basically mm-hmm. made him quit. Um, and the, the Margarito fight, I also thought yep. about just because he was giving away so much size in that fight yep. and still wanted going away. Yeah, I and those were the ones that I had left over, plus also Shane Mosley because... He made Shane Mosley basically retreat for nine rounds of that fight, and nobody yeah, really made Shane yeah, Mosley retreat. It wasn't an exciting. Performance. That's what I was going to say. I wouldn't. I wouldn't encourage anyone to uh, take forty-eight minutes to watch yeah. that fight. No, it wasn't exciting, but it was. But yeah, it was a, a sign of just how dominant it could be. Once he dropped Shane, Shane just didn't want any part of that, and yeah. uh, that was not the way that Shane fought right. uh, most of the time. So yeah, uh, basically pretty pretty similar lists. It's just a question of you know. Uh, what order you had it in. But right. so there you go. So you had Cotto Morales two, Barrera one, Marquez two, and Thurman, and I had Hatton, De La Hoya, Laduaba, Diaz, and Matisse. I think that's a pretty good collection. That, that's a Hall of Fame career right there. <laughs> it really is. That's a couple Hall of Fame careers right there. <laughs> right? Seriously. All right. That will do it for this week's episode of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. Uh, there's a decent likelihood of a money punch mini pod this Friday, looking at the odds on Fury Wilder three. Uh, no word on whether amateur odds maker Joe Goosen will join us for that one. Uh, that would be great. I would love to do one of those with Joe. That would be great. Uh, you will hear from us again next Monday as we recap Fury Wilder 3 and look ahead to fights involving Mikey Garcia and Emmanuel Navarrete. Plus, I may or may not do the assigned celebrity deathmatch top five list, or perhaps <laughs> I'll find another good excuse to delay it one more time. You better do it. Coward. running gag in the podcast. <laughs> We're due a running gag. Maybe that'll be it. We'll see. All right. The running, the only running in this gag is you running away from my top five challenge. Nice. Nice. We've got a feisty press conference going on here. All right. Until then, be safe, be kind, Eric, and be well.